Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast, and welcome back to our series, Ecotones of the Spirit. Today, we'll be bringing you our third and final large group session with Gary Paul Nabhan. Um, we will be bringing you an interview with him later. In this presentation, Gary did several chunks that we've kind of sewn together into a single pod with some final concluding remarks from Fred Bonson. So we hope you're all caught up with Ecotones, and thank you for joining us for this final large session with Gary Paul Nabhan. I, I was really touched by, um, by a reminder of those who uh, settled and resided in this place before us that Victoria has led off the invocation with um, uh, the Eastern Cherokee people. And if you've never visited their Eastern Cherokee Native Plant Resource Center, just know that there's some beautiful things happening in that community. Uh, as the kids go home from school for the summer at this point, um, in the years I've been there, every child uh, goes home with um, what we call a 12-pack in, in the garden nursery trade of um, the seeds of their ancestors to plant in their garden. But I, I also want to say that when I've talked to Eastern Cherokee people, they remind me that there's voices missing in the food community now that we need to remember. And those include um, the chestnut, uh, their keystone uh, uh, tree food species. Uh, now beech nuts everywhere on the East Coast and Midwest are in sharp decline and, and threatened or endangered in many states. Southern flying squirrel that used to jump between the trees here like some of us saw some of the other squirrel species doing but that's on the endangered species list. Hickory shad, one of the many fish species that flowed out of Appalachia through the Piedmont down to the coast, spent time in the estuaries and then came back up. Um, the, um, the eels that uh, went out to the Sargasso Sea came back into all the streams in this part of the Central and South Atlantic and they're endangered. Um, turning to food crops, the Nickajack apple that was found around an old Cherokee camp, no one knows its origin except that it had a historic association with the Cherokee. Um, just found in three or four places in North Carolina now. Uh, uh, Burford pear, known only from um, uh, Virginia and North Carolina, hickory king and bloody butcher corns. It used to be the mainstay corns in this area. Now a few heirloom collectors still have them and one or two seed companies offer them, but it, in commercial cultivation, I'm not sure if anyone's doing it, except for maybe corn mash, if you consider that a commercial cultivation. Candy roaster squashes is a big group of things. So there were dozens and dozens of different kind of varieties each one for a different holler or cove uh, in the Piedmont and Appalachia. And then pole beans were the same way, including one called um, uh, Aunt Jenny's Cripple Creek pole bean that is now grown unbelievably, not by people in this area, 
but by their descendants who had to immigrate to the West Coast to work in factories, kept the bean going, can't be found in their own home villages anymore. And uh, one fellow, Bill Best, near Berea College, uh, keeps it going. So I want to start out with an exercise of remembering the voices, whether it's plant or animal, native uh, cultures or immigrant cultures that aren't here with us, and why we need them to be in our hearts and in these conversations. And I'm going to start out by just a little story that's at the start of the Food from the Radical Center book that sort of presses home why this is so important when we're talking about food justice. And this is from a, a conference about salmon stream restoration in the Northwest. Some place-made foods may bless your table more frequently than they did in the past, but the fruits of restoration do not appear all at once, nor are all of them edible. Some of the rewards, in fact, are social, for the roots of the trees we plant with our neighbors begin to bind us together. Most importantly, these efforts can break down our stereotypes, as a woman from a salmon restoration project once brought home to me. I encountered her in a workshop at the Society of Ecological Restoration, and although I no longer remember her name, I will never forget how humbled I was by her message. This middle-aged woman came into our workshop to offer a 20-minute talk after half of the session was already over. She sat down in a crowded room among a couple dozen young environmentalists, excited by the fact that President Clinton and Forest Service Director Jack Ward Thomas had just put 24 million acres of old growth forest in their region under ecosystem management and out of logging. It was not long after the federal listing of the northern spotted owls had forced the closure of industrial scale logging in many national forests. Thousands of loggers that had grown up in that area had lost their jobs. The youth in the room were not only jazzed that their side had won major environmental victory. They were also hopeful that now forest restoration would be funded at an unprecedented scale, the equivalent land area of four Connecticut's. As this latecomer stood up to be introduced and offer the next talk, the mood in the room shifted. I perked up. Perhaps it was because the next speaker looked so different from many others at the conference. While the vast majority of participants wore Kiva sandals, khaki shorts, uh, green fleeces and um, uh, bright colored t-shirts that say things like save the salmon, spawn until you die. Uh, and uh, She wore a pastel western style pantsuit, a silk blouse and cowgirl boots. As she spoke her very first word to us, I can sense the male attendees dismissing her because of her dress, her beauty parlor hairdo, and her vaguely rural western accent. She started off by explaining that she was there because her husband had been one of the loggers who'd lost his job when the FEMAT logging closures began to go in effect. Just hearing that she was from a family of logger made some in this group uncomfortable. Their collective body language grew irritated, even hostile. Even when she began to describe how she and her husband had recruited jobless loggers to join them in restoring salmon streams, most of the men and the women were tapping their pencils, looking out the windows, or gazing at their laptops. 
but when this stranger in a strange land, but then the stranger in a strange land did the most flabbergasting thing right in the middle of her 20 minutes. She asked if we could take a two minute break so she could use a woman's room and tidy up and suggested that she could still finish her talk in the allotted time so we should all stay put. When she abruptly left the room, there were curses, barbs, and wisecracks that do not bear repeating. And yet everyone stayed in the room as they had been politely asked to do. When the woman returned, she was dressed in a fleece, a t-shirt with Save the Salmon, Tevis. Her hair was pulled back into a ponytail. She moved in front of the podium, and to the best of my recollection, she said something like this. Now you boys, listen up. A few minutes ago, you dismissed me on the basis of my dress and my accent. But I'll tell you what, I will not let you dismiss the fine work that the great men that my husband and I have recruited are doing to save the streams and the salmon of this region. They are healing the very streams and wildlife habitats that some of you in this room have worked to protect. You need their work as much as they need yours. I don't think I've ever been as humiliated by my own tacit acceptance of a room of people dismissing someone is that moment. In other words, I just idly went along with the pack because it was just a bunch of 20-minute talks anyway, wasn't it? And yet, we do that unconsciously all the time to people who look, sound, think, pray, uh, believe, maybe differently than we do. And so I want to do uh, a little exercise where you write down someone that you've treated like they were the other. Not necessarily as an adversary or an enemy, because I know most of you, all of you, are, are disinclined to do that in every possible way in your lives. But how do we keep in our hearts those voices who aren't here, those who tend to be dismissed in gatherings like this, who never would necessarily attend something like this, but have just as much of a right and a heart to be here that would love what we've been doing if they had the chance to do it. I'm using the word radical center uh, because it's a term that we're using in almost every discussion I am in the Western states about this, especially after the Malheur wildlife refuge tragedy of standoffs between ranchers and environmentalists and government agencies that had no way or couldn't imagine a way to walk to the middle to each other. This idea of the radical center that emerged out of the rancher environmentalist conflicts that Addie Abbey and uh, some of my friends in Earth first prompted in the late 80s has sort of shifted where some of the same people at, at Abbey's dead, but even Dave Fordman, who was one of my neighbors when the FBI was investigating all of us stuffing Earth First journals into envelopes. Um, people in the Earth First movement are entirely on board 
with this radical center notion that to really restore and safeguard the earth, we need all hands on deck. We need to understand each group's skills and capacity to do that. And where this has gotten the most steam is in people who want to restore the food producing capacity of their landscapes, what we call working landscapes rather than wilderness. And so um, it's, uh, it started out simply to resolve conflicts between environmentalists and ranchers over overgrazing and its impact on wildlife. Now it's almost all a positive rather than a preventative uh, movement. And there's a similar thing that's just fascinating going on in Washington, Oregon, and California called the Middle Path, where organic and conventional farmers said, why have we, we been at odds with uh, each other for 30 years as if we're talking on different, or working on different planets? Don't we want to adopt the best practices of the other group and at times distribute all our stuff from the same valley in the same truck? rather than one truck leaving with the organic produce and one with the conventional produce of people who are transitioning to organic or integrated pest management or whatever. How can we work together rather than thinking ourselves as enemies? So this is really a groundswell in the West because we've had so many tragedies, including true shootouts. So I just have to say, um, Greetings, Earthlings. We all have a, a, a stake in this planet together, and that's what we're, we're about here. And food is a way that we're trying to solve those differences in southern Arizona that's a highly divided state, and nearly every one of our cities and counties is highly divided, not just Democrat and Republican, but between uh, faith-based and, and people who who in the past have disparaged faith-based communities between uh, urban and rural. And we now have two designations, one from UNESCO as the first city of food cultures in the United States, and another one from the Park Service for the Santa Cruz Valley National Heritage Area, the rural area of our food shed surrounding Tucson, where we're doing this working landscape, food producing capacity restoration. And I just want to remind you that what we're talking about isn't new in a sense, that from the 30s on, there's been enclaves in America doing this kind of work and calling it very similar things. They're working to re-diversify our landscapes for resilience, now for climate change, but a lot of this work originally started in the Dust Bowl, so it's very similar. To demonstrate how our diversity and the diversity of opinions and innovations on how to steward the earth can help combat climate change rather than thinking that the government is going to give us a top-down solution. To show this beautiful term that uh, Robin Kimmer's come up with, reciprocal restoration, that when we restore the land, that process of being involved in it restores our communities, and then exchange ways from different cultures, races, faiths, to have a more robust and, and uh, uh, nuanced way of dealing with these issues. But in doing so, we know that we're still at the time in American history since the Civil War where we have these Grand Canyon-sized chasms dividing our community. Next one. And um, while we're in the joy and the camaraderie of uh, being with, with each other and the warmth that we feel in this room, there's still these tough, tough problems in the United States. I, I got 
text messages all day long that our friend Scott Warren with No More Deaths was acquitted yesterday on the jury, but that still we don't know whether the Border Patrol is going to stop humanitarian aid to undocumented um, immigrants. And so that's right in my backyard. I live right on the border. This is one out of every four cars that passes my home in the morning is a Border Patrol car. So I, I have to go through checkpoints just like as if I were a Palestinian from Ramallah going to sell my farm produce at a farmer's market in Jerusalem. So the divisions are many, but which to you are most bothersome that just break your heart that, that say, oh my God, I can't live in a world where we still have people who perceive that keeping a distance from one another, having different stance, having this divisiveness is going to get us anywhere. And so I want again for you to turn, and we're going to do this exercise really quickly, but here's a whole laundry list of some of these divisions, these dualisms, as Richard Orr calls them, that we need to erase from our minds in ways. How do we, how do we deal with those respectfully? There are distinctivenesses between different people. We're not saying erase that. But how do we erase the adversarial feeling between these different groups? So just let's do sort of a bullet point thing. Tell the neighbor next to you which of these divides just troubles you the most that you feel committed to heal over the rest of your life. So I want to get to the, the core of this, um, this issue that I think uh, Revkin has so well stated. Um, and I wish I could say this to every meeting of wildlife restoration people or shoreline restoration people. What needs restoring to me is not American nature, what's outside, but the nature of America. That until we get that, that we have to do that restorative work on ourselves, just not on a bunch of trees, we're, we're not seeing the forest for the trees. And that's why it's time to further rethink and expand what a spirit-infused food community can be and all of whom it can serve. Okay, so it's not just, it's, it's uh, what Victoria said so beautifully yesterday, that it's about the conversation between us, not th uh, that uh, there's individual heroes or success stories that if, if all of us don't come along and we see improvement in our whole food system, it's, it's a hollow victory to see local foods in an elite restaurant, but not in the, the mouths and hands of the poor. So let's remember that we're not alone in this. And people have been struggling to figure out ways to do this for years in things that they perceived as difficult as the climate change we're now facing. I'm just going to go through this really quickly, but during the Dust Bowl, uh, Aldo Leopold was shaping that, that thing that many of you know is the land ethic that's in San Carmen. And he sort of used his place in the Driftless region of Wisconsin, Coon Valley, as a trial of those concepts where he heard that there was just tremendous gullying and, and, uh, and impoverishment of the food producing capacity of this landscape during the Dust Bowl there. And so he went out with the new director of a new agency that later became the Soil Conservation Service that became the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And they went out to start what they call cooperative conservation of food producing landscapes. 
and they did something weird for academics and uh, uh, government bureaucrats. They went out to the coffee shop and listened. They listened to the farmers. What's your needs? What's your tragedies? What's, what's failed? What, what do you think you can do about it? What, you tell us what you want and we'll respond. And so the Coon Valley community asked for help in healing gullies, restoring plant cover, building fence rows and windbreaks, reintroducing wildlife like wild turkeys. During the height of the Dust Bowl, when people were starving to death because of crop failure due to drought in about eight to nine states from Oklahoma west to the, to the Corn Belt. De uh, degraded land and water, diminished plant populations, plummeting incomes. People were really in a tough space. And that triggered, it's like the necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. That triggered this land ethic-based cooperative conservation. But the interesting thing was, those communities were faith-based communities from Eastern Europe who already knew about guilds, guilds for craftsmen, guilds for farmers, collectives as we now know. And they already had that ethic to work together. When someone needed to sow their seeds, eight people would show up with draft horses and they'd all work different parts of the field, have lunch at one house, go on to the next one. The faith-based communities were already working together in what we're talking about today, that covenant community. Ella Leopold's land ethic guided people into what Robin Kimmerer, who later went to the University of Wisconsin and lived at the Arboretum there where all this started, now calls restoration, uh, reciprocal restoration. More than 400 farmers voluntarily uh, were involved in that. But they brought in over uh, uh, 200 students from University of Wisconsin, 1,000 WPA workers, and many, many people with technical assistance. Church groups, foresters, horticulturalists all came out to plant trees, windrows, all of this stuff. A massive, massive thing. Now, fast forward a half century because people don't tell the second part of the story. Soil Conservation Service has this emblazoned in their history, the first part. Act two, 50 years later, the, the uh, watershed, the food shed is restored. Some people there in that driftless region have the idea of a co-op to market their products. First they did vegetables and then they did something called crop, the, uh, uh, a co-op that was uh, formed in what, 1988, and it became Organic Valley. How many of you have tasted Organic Valley milk, cheese, yogurt? It's the largest farm collective in the country. Now, $100 million of value-added products that have come out of, first out of that area, and then now it's spread to a bunch of other states and even one province in Canada. And, and that's the funny part of this, when I met a uh, founder of this with my buddy Kurt Miney, we knocked on a door where there was a sign that said uh, uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Crop and, and uh, Organic Valley. Uh, we said, what was that like starting? And he said, well, this is conservative country. And when we wanted to form a collective or a guild for mutual aid, they thought we were communists. This is, you know, like we'd just gone through the McCarthy era. And then when we each family had their first million dollars of revenue and crop-related income through the collective. Everyone in the whole damn Driftless region wanted to be a communist. <laughs> so, so this is clearly coming out of that social tradition. Absolutely right. So let's go on. I'm going to 
uh, bypass, talk more about that. But, but there's little enclaves of this all around the country. In Iowa, where I went to school, Catholic rural life and, and uh, um, uh, the uh, practical farmers of Iowa, I mean, Catholic rural life is faith-based, practical farmers, farmers of every faith, but you have incredible things emerging out of their collaborations, like using local wine and breads for communion. They'll say, why are we not helping farmers who are producing grapes and wine on their place by buying their products and having those uh, sanctified for use in, as a sacrament? I, I mean, whoever thought that we'd come to a time where people are localizing communion uh, in that way? It's a beautiful thing, and of course, it's all over the country now. And Nikki and Fred were involved in this Food Justice, Faith, and Climate Change Forum we had uh, University of Arizona a couple of years ago. And the amazing thing to me is all this faith-based work is going on in food justice and all this other work in civil society and those people are hardly ever talking to each other. Why would a farmer not talk to a food bank, you know? Or why would a, a, a food justice group at a, a campus not say, oh my gosh, half the soup kitchens and food pantries in our whole community are run by by churches and synagogues and mosques, why and we've never invited them to any of our meetings. So this is another schism that we need to deal with. Next. So fast forward again another uh, 30 years. Uh, 1995 with a buddy I wrote a book um, saying we were going into a pollinator crisis in farmland and that a lot of crops were having diminishing yields, not because they were poorly managed, but the pollinators weren't there. Pesticides and herbicides that killed them off. We uh, reduce the conservation reserve lands on farms that were supposed to be in perennial pasture where milkweeds and things grew. Um, and it was stuff that Rachel Carson predicted. Um, you know, she was dying of cancer and never told anyone about it because they thought that they'd say that she was a biased scientist. Mm -hmm. But she knew that it was hitting the pollinators as hard as it was hitting her own body. So when the monarch decline started to happen, we said, Time to honor Rachel Carson on the 50th anniversary of her death. We had a uh, nationwide prayer thing that about a dozen earth ministry and a whole bunch of groups got all their churches involved in this. And we made the comparisons between the metamorphosis that monarch butterflies go through and the metanoia that all of us have to go through. Mm. Next slide. I, I got too choked up about this to even talk about it. Mm. Mm. We, we started uh, uh, with uh, one of uh, Fred's neighbors in Brevard, uh, Ina Warren, who's now dealing with some tough cancer. We started a coalition of farmers, writers, faith leaders from Canada, the US, and Mexico to, to say, we, we gotta be the leaders in this, innovate at a small scale level, and then kick it up to the next level, and it really started to happen. And here's one of the pollinator gardens right here in Nashville featured. Next. Where did that go? It wasn't immediate. It's like Rebecca Solnitz. Some of this stuff we might not see during our lifetimes, but already 70,000 farmers mm -hmm. involved in pollinator plantings on their farms and ranches. Mm -hmm. A third of all the farmers in Iowa, in the midst of what I call not the corn belt, but the roundup belt, yeah. are willing to stop using roundup on part of their farmlands and do prairie filter strips with milkweeds and other things, and their yields go up when they do that. Next. 
pollinator crisis is not over. Monarchs from the East and Midwest are, are um, uh, still declining. The ones in California are on the rise again. But now we're looking at fallow fields and right-of-ways. Uh, fallow fields from the Trump tariffs because of uh, soybeans not being bought in uh, from the United States to send off to China. We have six and a half million acres of fallow fields in the Midwest this year, and we want to plant all of that in milkweeds and pollinator plants. So there's another crisis happening right now. Our kids are sick. Uh, a disease that we used to call adult onset diabetes are affecting 11 and 12 year olds. It ain't adult onset diabetes anymore if it's hitting pre-teenage kids, pre-teenage kids. In Mexico, I'm on the Mexican border, uh, Mexico now has the right, highest rates of childhood obesity and diabetes in the world, and they're my neighbors, 60% of whom are Mexican-American, are suffering deeply. All of our Native American communities are dealing with uh, some remarkable programs, but it's an uphill battle. And one of the reasons are because we've taken the diversity out of our diet, including the protective foods like the um, native crops that, that Nikki's people have grown for centuries and reduced our diet down to just a few varieties of a few vegetables and grains. That's given us a crippled food system. And in Arizona, where we are, the collateral damage the cost of that is greater than the farm gate income to our farmers and ranchers. What I'm saying is the cost of treating diabetes and obesity in Arizona costs more to the families and the taxpayers who are providing public services than what farmers and ranchers make off their productive lands. When the collateral damage is greater than the intended benefits of a system, the system's broken. Next. So the diabetes and obesity thing is from a homogenized diet and ironically climate change and, and globalization are impacting that dietary diversity even more. So we're losing some whole crops because they can never again grow because it's too hot for them to flower and fruit. But there's a counter movement that I just want to celebrate. It's not just in Tucson, it's in every one of your communities, too. In our little city, 50 new food micro-enterprises, not by the elite, by people that started selling stuff at a swap meet and then moved up to a farmer's market and then got a little food truck or a food cart and then have opened a restaurant. 120 new products, value-added products from wild foods, from local varieties, Hispanic, or the Tahanoatum tribe is selling about two dozen of these things at their Sanavir co-op. These are made from local stocks, food grown right there, prepared for value-added products right there. And we have people like Hallie Thomas, uh, this young African-American woman, uh, seated in her chef smock, who's now a national celebrity because she started out at a garden um, center uh, on a farm learning about fresh garden produce, decided to become a chef at age 13. Mm -hmm. She's now cooked for the Obamas three times, including at Camp David in the White House. Mm -hmm. And she's a superstar inspiring other kids to get on board with us. And that loss of diversity in our diet is being counteracted by 
this beautiful thing that a Hispanic librarian in our community, Justine Hernandez, began where she said, why are we just doing books through libraries? Why aren't we doing seeds of the old wooden card catalogs? We don't use those damn things for anything because everything's online. Let's put seed packets in those card catalogs. That's down 26 libraries in our county on the Tahanoa Autumn Reservation, the little mining town of Ajo in Tucson. And if the seeds aren't in your library card catalog, uh, oak uh, boxes, you can have interlibrary loan and it'll be to your library in two days. 60% of the people who check those seed packets out bring back seeds from the harvest to share with other people. So it's a self-regenerating thing. I don't think 60% of the books I've ever checked back to the library. <laughs> you know, they, I find them under my bed or something. And so we've had an interlibrary, I mean a seed library forum internationally with um, people from five countries that came and saw this thing. In Tucson alone, we're distributing 2,200 distinct varieties of herbs, vegetables, grains, and medicinal plants for free to people where they live, not going to a fancy farmer's market, but right where they live. I love librarians. They are just problem solvers in service to communities. So thanks to many of you, we even though diversity is declining all over the world in wild animals, wild plants, crops, in the United States and Canada over the last 20 years, we've seen a five-fold increase in people's access to the remaining diversity. It's a counter trend. It's miraculous. It's truly miraculous that the kinds of crops I was talking about here in Appalachia, we now know that Appalachia was the richest place in all of North America for crop diversity in part thanks to the Cherokee and the many families that they married into of immigrants that have kept all that going. Hundreds and hundreds of apples, of beans, of swatch, of, of corn varieties still within 150 miles of here. So clearly we need to celebrate and support those practices that offer us options to these us versus them dualisms that only feed divisiveness and gridlocks. So there's real urgent need to take this middle path. These words, middle path, radical center, does that sound familiar to any of you ever read the gospel? Mm -hmm. We're reinventing a language that's 2,000 years old for healing these wounds in our communities. Gary has charged us, commissioned us, and I hope you feel that commissioning. Yes. And uh, I hope you feel that this week is more than just another conference, that it's more than just a fun thing to do, uh, that it's more than just intellectual stimulation with new material, that this is also culture making. Right? We are being recreated, reformed, reshaped, hopefully spiritually, bodily, emotionally. And, um, and, this, and we have a responsibility, I think, as people being remade and reshaped to take that out into our communities and our churches and our work and all the other spheres that we move in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. 
Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Music is by Paul Diemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.